Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman. Uh, You may have noticed that the show has been on something of a holiday hiatus for the last little while. Just wanted to let you know that we will be coming back, bringing new episodes every two weeks, so nothing to worry about there. Uh, Today, I'm joined by futurist and author Max Borders, and today we are going to be discussing his work on political decentralization. Max, it's very nice to have you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Political and legal decentralization seems to be a pretty persistent continuing theme in much of your work. How did you end up writing on that subject? I guess the idea came to me, uh, my philosophical background makes me appreciate the idea of pluralism, not just the fact, but the normative idea of pluralism. So the fact of pluralism is that we're all different from one to the next, and we have different conceptions of the good life. And yet we're social creatures. So we want to self-organize. We tend to want to organize with other people who share our conceptions of the good. That can be difficult in an age where we live in this in this system where in which, well, frankly, you wake up in the morning, imagine you have your, your smartphone. And if you were to open your smartphone and you only had two apps, the red app and the blue app, that's pretty much the system we have. That's your choice in the United States of America anyway. Now there are parliamentary systems that have some other shades, but basically that's the, that's the choice set we have these days. We wouldn't like that phone. So I wanted to get people to imagine a social operating system that had different kinds of governance apps that more closely comport with their conceptions of the good. And that is, broadly speaking, a liberal doctrine, I guess you could say. But liberal doctrines have a cultural element and a legal element. And so legal innovation is is definitely something I've become interested in. What role do you think technology and entrepreneurship plays in your political and social vision? Because you don't just talk about traditional political activism. You talk a lot about uh, technology and entrepreneurship and things like that. Yeah, no, no doubt. Think of it as, well, let's, I mean, I love the name of the show. Um, it harkens to Matt Ridley's uh, Rational Optimist. And in that book, he sets out this idea of ideas having sex. Um, that is one mode or mechanism where innovation can happen. And, you know, in his later books, he talks about the mode and manner of tinkering and fusing ideas and trying things out. That tends to happen in market situations. And in markets, markets are, we tend to think of them in abstract terms as being something, some big thing that happens where trade occurs. But really, markets are made up of people and people trying to serve each other better. When we imagine that that tinkering, that experimentation of trying to serve each other better, we have to ask, why would we appeal to a single monopoly whose legal system is in amber, Right. We are raised to think of monopolies as providing poorer quality, higher prices, and all kinds of other negative things if they are able to be dominant in the market and restrict barriers to entry. So the way I think of it is not just unleash the entrepreneurs, but let's start unleashing the entrepreneurs in specific areas that we've never thought of them being unleashed before, namely in the governance space. So if we think of governance as being like a product that someone can use, the entrepreneurs can gravitate not only to some set of institutions that will allow them to flourish and experiment more, say, starting a business, but also there can be legal entrepreneurs or legal innovators who can establish different frameworks and different rules based on past patterns, perhaps, but also introducing new insights and novel ways of helping people organize according to their conceptions of the good. And this really is this really is a way of saying ideology only matters if we can try local experiments. The 20th century was this, I don't know, I guess you could say really dark time in history when 
ideologies were imposed on millions of people, and there was a lot of mass death in that century, right? So as Taleb would say, it was tried in an anti-fragile, I mean, in a fragile manner, where you impose a conception on the good on millions of people, seek to instantiate it, and force it down everyone's throats. It's the one true way kind of thinking. But when ideas are able to have sex in legal legal innovation, you can try different forms of governance. And those that really are aligned with with some group's particular conception of the good, they can see whether or not it's sustainable. And you don't get countries burning up in the fires of ideology. You get rather Darwinian experimentation in rule sets And those rule sets that do the best job of serving their constituents will persist in time and hopefully achieve some level of of stable equilibrium. And that's sort of the way I'm trying to look at this is basically applying that Matt Ridley insight to governance and to law. So there's maybe a civics class version of American politics where America is exactly what you just said. We've got 50 states, 50 laboratories of legal and political and governance innovation, and you can move around and find the one that fits you best. So what's wrong with that? And haven't we solved this problem? (laughs) That's a great question. I think it's a great idea. It's a great first approximation, and certainly the American experiment is one that I deeply, deeply appreciate. I, In fact, I would say that what has gone astray with the American experiment is the extent to which federalism has not been applied as it should. Well, and that's one problem. There are other problems with the constitutional order that we currently have now, but let me just, let me just focus in on two. The first one is that you have this idea particularly in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, which is the Bill of Rights, the end of the Bill of Rights, which sort of sets out this idea that the states and the people are sovereign in every respect other than that which is put into the rest of the Constitution, okay? So if it's not explicitly stated in the Constitution, uh, the founders, and they added the Bill of Rights later on after the Constitution to make sure that these rights were respected. Some said this is unnecessary. And as we've seen, it was necessary. But you'll find that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the federalist system that we're supposed to have is a dead letter. About I would I would estimate that about 90% of what the US federal government does, the executive branch does, is unconstitutional in this just based on the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. But you never hear about people bringing Ninth and Tenth Amendment suits to the Supreme Court. And it's just become a dead letter. It's just become essentially excised in a way. And whether that's because of what we might call fudge language in the Constitution or all of these loopholes that were allowed to creep in, uh, you know, the the Commerce Clause, interpretations of the Commerce Clause, the the General Welfare Clause, all of these things... um, have been allowed to supersede. It's like, well, the federal government can do whatever the hell it wants, which renders the Ninth and Tenth Amendments meaningless. So that's the first big problem. The second big problem is that the founders in the Constitution gave us this Bill of Rights, which is a beautiful and ennobling set of ideals, and that were that were reflected indeed in much of the Declaration of Independence. And I share thinking with people like Randy Barnett that these should be taken as a piece that these are the ch- our charter documents, not just the Constitution, but also the Declaration. It should be considered a species of law. But no one else does, and this is what you get. Does Randy argue that? Yeah, he does in his book called The Republican Constitution. Republican- Republican Constitu- yeah, that's on my reading list, but I haven't, I haven't opened it yet. Now, he and I disagree on the, the, nature of the of nature of consent, as in the consent of the governed, the Jeffersonian concept of the consent of the governed. But Perhaps we can talk about that another time. I'm a radical in this regard. I'm a radical Jeffersonian about this idea of consent. But setting aside that debate, the second big problem with the Constitution is that the Bill of Rights really doesn't show or articulate or operationalize how it is to be enforced. So what happens to authorities when they violate, besides the courts saying cease and desist with this law, there's no real enforcement mechanism. You know, we can imagine something like, and if any authority violates the amendments to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights, they will be hanged. 
or something like that, or they will be imprisoned or, or they will have all of their offices stripped from them by somebody. These are not present in the constitution. So over time, what has evolved is essentially a state of affairs that made even though the Federalists, the so-called Federalists, the central central authority guys like Hamilton at the time win with respect to implementing the Constitution, the anti-Federalist folks like Jefferson and Robert Yates lost the debate. But because but it seems that almost everything these guys warned about has come to pass. In other words, they're winning the debate, the debate today. What do you think the United States and maybe the rest of the world can learn from Switzerland? Because You've written about it. This is an interest of mine, too. It seems like I, I'm aware that that the framers of the Swiss Constitution were somewhat influenced by the United States as well, as the U.S. framers were somewhat in, uh, influenced by Switzerland. Uh, but it seems like a lot of the ideals in the American founding were just done better in Switzerland. I mean, their form of federalism seems to be more legitimate, less in name only. Um, they haven't had a gigantic growth of the executive or military industrial complex in the way we have. What can we learn from Switzerland? Well, you just you just set out a couple that I think are really important. The Canton system. There's this fellow named Eugen Huber uh, around the beginning of the 20th century. There was a the Swiss Confederacy. There was a Swiss Confederation prior to. I want to say it was before 1920. I want to say more like 1910, but don't don't hold me to that. Sometime around that period, they wanted a greater sense of national unity and some harmonization of, of the law, but they didn't want to create any kind of federal monster. And Eugen Huber did a tremendous job of striking that balance. So the loose the problem of loose confederation is is one that we can talk about and we can debate. And certainly in the United States, it's like, oh, it's too loose a confederation. We, you know, we can't have these rebellions. We need to be able to put down rebellions if we're going to remain unified. We need to be able to raise money for that. That was kind of the justification at the time, which in hindsight, I find a little strange. But perhaps if I could go back and talk to those guys, um, they could persuade me that that this was an important point to to really have such great central authority. But yeah, the, this by comparison, I think the Swiss system has shown itself to be much more stable in time. Um, I think it a lot of it just has to do with their size, not even Eugen Huba's brilliance, but rather just its size. It is big enough to be a commercial and finance powerhouse, um, but it is small enough to know that it's not going to go toe-to-toe with other imperial powers. So it has always declared neutrality and been vigorous in its self-defense. So Swiss, you know, they own firearms, they have militias, and they've always had a kind of a militia mentality, a very don't tread on me way of thinking, but they don't like foreign entanglements. I think that part that you pointed out at the beginning of this, when you asked the question, which is why haven't they developed a military industrial complex? It's almost as if the the apparent American victory in World War II transformed us in ways that turned us into a technocratic empire in time rather than a a federal republic. And that is unfortunate. It's like the cost of winning World War II was to become a technocratic empire. And it just never stopped after that. The interests and the incentives were aligned to create a technocratic empire. And that's what we live in today. Yeah, I wonder if any country, whatever its founding ideals, just couldn't resist the potential of being a major political and military power, a superpower or something. If if that seems like a feasible option, maybe it's just not something that states can resist. And, and it's just obviously not an option for Switzerland. Speaking of Swiss governance structures and constitutions, can you say something about the Constitution of Consent contest? Yeah. That you're, that you're, uh, I'm not sure if it's over yet, uh, but... What is it this is, project? Yeah, it is over. And in fact, today, today, we are announcing the winners. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, yep. We have that before us today, and we're gonna have some happy people and some and people who are gonna be disappointed, obviously. We had 42 entries before the deadline in 
three after the deadline. So they were disqualified immediately, those that came in after the deadline. But the idea of the constitution of consent really is to take this Jeffersonian ideal seriously, that each individual has a right to form a real social contract with others, a multilateral social contract. And to the extent that, and that's what I, I take it very literally, I think it's the idea of a social contract in, say, Rousseauian terms, uh, i.e. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or um, even in, in Lockean terms, this idea of a hypothetical social contract or a government is somehow a social contract and it owes us all this stuff by virtue of its existence without any form of explicit consent. This allows the powerful and their handmaidens to really get away with a lot of excuse my mouth, but bullshit. And I think the growth of empire, um, though we might call it the welfare warfare state, has grown up really on this idea of a social contract that is vague or imaginary or hypothetical, uh, i.e. not explicit. Because if one could identify a breach of contract, then one has a, a right with many others to withdraw from that contract. I know I certainly would. If the United States federal government is meant to be a social contract. It is certainly not one I would sign. And I bet you a whole lot of other people wouldn't either. Now, consider my accent. I don't sound like I come from uh, from New York or Connecticut. I come from North Carolina. Um, and I lived in Texas now for about 14 years before coming back to the Carolinas. Now I live in South Carolina, which is, of course, the the state that that was the first to secede in the Civil War, right before the Civil War, and it set it off. And that that is um, makes this idea of secession have a lot of baggage associated with it. But if we think about it in other terms that people might find more pleasant, like a right of self-determination, which is actually in the UN Charter, then the idea of secession, separatism, or what have you doesn't seem so bad. What I would like to suggest is that this is our in our DNA, right? A lot of people like to say the American dream is in our D, is is what is the, is sort of the grand narrative that defines us. And I would like to suggest that it is um, the consent of the governed that defines us, and if it doesn't, it ought to. So, in forming a new grand narrative of the United States. I really want to get behind this idea of the consent of the governed. And so the Constitution Contest was an effort to create a cosmopolitan document or charter that would bake that into its auspices and operationalize it to a very great degree. So this contest, which you can find, people can find the results at um, underthrow.org. The contest was designed to get people thinking more in earnest about that. And hopefully, it looks like uh, we're we're pretty close to forming a working group on taking the best of these ideas, starting to bolt them together and work on a Constitution of Consent 1.0 document. So at the very least, we have a symbol of what this order could look like. And that it's open source really moves the Overton window towards this notion of open source law, um, open source law capturing this notion of consent. Hey everyone, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a break to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to these episodes and giving me the opportunity to speak with people I admire and read amazing books every week, every other week, whatever. If you are interested in helping this little engine that could of a show grow, uh, please just recommend it to a friend. Recommend it to a friend. Maybe give it a give it a five star rating on one of those places you listen to it at, but. Really, if you just recommend it to someone, that that goes a long way um, for a small show like this. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. Keep listening. And back to the show. You mentioned secession, and and secession may or may not even have to be a part of this project. But uh, my thoughts have always been, morally, it seems like a completely legitimate concept for a group of people to say, you know, we, we choose not to be part of this political unit anymore to form our own or to not form any or something like that. My big potential objection with secession is just a, is a social scientific question that I don't know enough about, which is, is it likely to lead to something like civil war, which is intolerable and kind of a deal breaker for me, probably 
very little is worth that. I have a very unromanticized view of war, and I think living under a tyrannical rule for a little while is probably better than war, and and it's it's kind of a myth that some great freedom-loving government is likely to come out of a revolution or something. Usually that's not the case. So it's just an empirical question for me. What's the likely outcome of something like that? If you've got a, a situation like it seems like uh, Brexit, where the European Union is not in a position or inclined to declare war on Britain for leaving the European Union, that's great. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on secession and the realities of the dangers of that? You know, I think you would have to consider the circumstances of time and place. You'd have to consider the context. In other words, if there were a broad secessionist movement, like for example, right now there 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 is talk. There has been a talk of a national divorce. It's usually framed in okay, the 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 red states are going to go their own, own way, and the blue states are going to go their own way, which is a you know means that you could end up in a state of affairs where either red red and blue are fighting over things, right, in all out war, or it could be a situation in which they agree to go their separate ways, they don't trade, and both are more oppressive in their own ways. The, you know, more right-wing oppression, more left-wing oppression. Both are, are, you know, unpleasant forms of oppression. That being said, I think that we need to take the Jeffersonian project seriously. We need to start talking about these ideas in peaceful terms. Satyagraha is a, a concept I appeal to to a very great degree, which is concept from Mahatma Gandhi, who, you know, was able through civil rights movements to to really to bring down the British Raj in time. There was, you know, a little bit of violence, but it was oppressive violence. You know, people were beaten up at protests and things like that and sit-ins. But it was really a civil rights movement. And I think if you can have a moralistic, uh, moralistic in a positive sense, a moral truth force which is roughly how Satyagraha is, is translated, then you can pave the way for a peaceful transition to a, a, a people establishing their own governance system. Now, if you said tomorrow the federal government is guaranteed they're going to send in the National Guard from many states or the army or whatever, the army reserves, and quash your rebellion and take over everything and occupy your streets – and then that's going to require us to, you know, everybody get their guns out and shoot back. I don't know. I think that it depends on the the sentiments of the people involved. My hope is that, and this is why I call my book and, and my substack Underthrow. My hope is that it would be carried out through Underthrow, which is uh, more like Gandhi's Underthrow of the British Raj, not like the French Revolution, which was the overthrow of the of monarchy. I want to talk more about that for sure, but let's. I want to stay on the Constitution contest for a little bit. I think that's so interesting. It's something I tinker with in my head a lot. Not full blown constitutions, but legal mechanisms, political mechanisms that might effectively make political power more limited, more responsive, uh, channel it in less destructive ways. One of the mm -hmm. and you've been bringing up Jefferson a lot. I think one of his more interesting ideas that. I don't think he really pursued very much is the idea that, you know, laws require not just consent across space and different states in the union, but across time, and that you might need to reaffirm legal regimes periodically in time. And I, I think that's a really radical idea that I'm I'm not aware of any of any states that really take that seriously. But I think the idea of obligatory sunset provisions as a constitutional feature is really interesting. I don't know. Do, have you have you looked into that much as a, as a Jeffersonian, or did many people include anything any of that aspect of Jefferson's thought in their constitutions that they submitted? You mean a periodic review? Yes, yes. they did. Yeah, periodic review. Um, there were not only sunset provisions uh, presented for all laws. In other words, they all had to come up for periodic review and yeah. reimplementation. Um, there were a couple who did that. I can't remember if the winners had those provisions, but those are certainly features that the working group we're forming is going to want to see in there. There is also in the submissions this idea of something similar to what you might uh, Jefferson's idea of ward republics, 
word republics was something he presented late in the game. Uh, I think it was even after his presidency in correspondence with smart friends. He basically said that he presented the idea of the ward and that the ward would be the most uh, powerful entity uh, relative to the state and the federal government. So you had these very small and you would be able to, in his mind, self-organize in such a way that you could get closer and closer to unanimity. So it's building in this right of exit. So this is a kind of another kind of check. It's a vote with your feet idea. Um, there's also people who presented the idea of sortition, which is that your legislators, your 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 leaders are sort of picked like juries from a pool of, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, some sort of civically minded or talented people. I don't know how wild I am about sortition for various reasons, but um, I, I would prefer sortition to the system that we have now, certainly. What about rotation? But, That's another feature of the Swiss system that there's the the executive council rotates who is the president. So everyone kind of knows like they're going to get a turn at the helm. And it I don't know, it seems to defang the maybe the uh, the ambition that the lead executive has. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I, I sometimes question I go back and forth in my mind and I'm curious to even get your thoughts on it. I'm, I question the mind of the, the, the idea of the executive or a presidency or a single single decision maker. I do understand in some sense, for example, that we evolved hierarchies for a reason. And one of those reasons, I mean, one of those those reasons I set out, you know, in much of world history is when we had settled agriculture. And this this is validated and verified by the Yale political scientist James C. Scott in his book Against the Grain is basically that states were early protection rackets. The brigands came around and said, okay, I'm going to take this much of your grain and I'm going to continue to come around and do that. But in exchange, I'm going to protect you. And in so doing, bigger guys like me are going to come along. And I'm going to make sure they don't take your grain so that I can, right? Um, so there was sort of a, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse kind of phenomenon, a little bit of mafioso logic. But the pr protection racket eventually evolved into states. And of course, even proto-states, these small bands of brigands with one chief, <laughs> had to make swift coordinated action and therefore decisions in combat scenarios. So the chieftain was someone who was really good at making those swift decisions. And uh, people rallied behind him because it's almost always a man who does that um, in, in battle. To um, to get that swift coordinated action so that they could operate as a unit and decisions could be made easily as a unit. You don't want to sit around uh, just before battle and 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 have stuff something mired in committee. So deliberative bodies came around later when you know you had more time and you weren't being attacked. So there is there is this idea of an executive that is the you know the president is the the head of the armed forces right the commander in chief as it were, and I understand that that rationale. But I think with technological advance and and new ways of uh, of consens building consensus mechanisms and I the idea of distributed de decentralized defense, that we can start to imagine ways of different consensus mechanisms on decisions like this. Now, that is highly speculative. So to answer your question, I think to defang the executive in some sense and restrict those kind of decisions, for example, whether and to what extent to go to war to go to war to the deliberative body, but then commanding the armies is left to a single individual or commanding, generally speaking, you know, is left to an individual. I think there's some wisdom in that. Um, but ways to represent checks on that authority uh, with rotation. Interesting idea. I'd actually I, I was actually um, had forgotten completely about that. It's really interesting. The general desire to defang central authorities exercising monopoly influence is is definitely I'm, I'm open to it, both the pragmatic means and more idealistic versions, because I think something in between is going to be what gets instantiated. Yeah, I think w when I think about these kinds of governance solutions, you know, my cards on the table, I'm, I'm primarily thinking about a pragmatic compromise to defang political power. Like what would be 
something that could have that effect, but might still be acceptable to some governing authority, because I don't generally think of the whole enterprise as being legitimate in the first place or or necessary. But I imagine, you know, if you if you, you know, propose a constitution that says, you know, everyone in the state abdicates tomorrow shall be the whole of the law, then that gets rejected pretty quickly. But if, you know, if if a lot of the interesting parts of successful constitutions like the Swiss Constitution or the US Constitution just get the dial turned towards decentralization, mm. towards more skepticism of centralized authority or political authority in general and you know, my understanding of this of the Swiss rotation system is it's I think it's just an artifact of the international system that they kind of demand a head executive. It's just a, a common feature of every country and like they want to fit in. They really have an executive council, but for the purposes of diplomacy, someone is like the honorary president, but it doesn't really mean very much. And most Swiss people would couldn't tell you who their president was at any given time. That's pretty cool. That would yeah, be nice. and the, and and that most of the action is happening at the level of Canton is, yeah. is I think is pretty beautiful. What about decoupling geography from governance? Is this a feature of a lot of the or many of the constitutions? I know it's an I think it's an interest of yours as well that there's no there's no necessary reason why the rules under which I'm governed have to be all completely coupled to my geographic location in space. That's right. There were some submissions who, this is um, an idea generally referred to as panarchy from a Belgian liberal named Dupuis, who wrote back in 1860, published this this essay called Panarchy. So there was a considerable lip service to panarchy, and there was definitely, there, there were some submissions that unpacked this idea quite a bit. To be honest, I was looking for both I was looking for how you operationalize governance in meat space while giving maximum latitude to the idea of decoupling law from territory. It is at least feasible that some laws should be attached to territory for reasons other than accidents of history, birth, and conquest, right? So that's how we usually get rules attached to territory. And, 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 you know, they're debatable, but like this idea of common defense, is it um, that we want to have, you know, defense, either police powers or or uh, defense, uh, let's say city state defense that operates over a jurisdiction? I, I'm actually much more radical than that, but I'm willing to hear that. The point is to decentralize it so that it doesn't become an, an imperial power. Right. And so it checks itself to some degree, even if it enjoys a local monopoly. I think we can take that further in a lot of areas. And I would like to see, as you as you suggested earlier, some experiments in that so we can actually look at the social science. Does this work? For example, we have historical social science that we can appeal to in this regard. And that's the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League was a group of city states that wanted to trade with one another peacefully and wanted to enjoy a, a compact of sorts that said we're going to we're going to provide for a common defense even though we're going to have municipal def- defense forces so they did this successfully for 500 years that's it's hard to argue so there's some social science that supports this some empirical evidence that this kind of stuff is possible now whether and to what extent these were local monopolies that were able to form alliances and go to war together we can talk about that too, especially people who are really great uh, historians about Hanseatic League. My sense is we can take it further um, in some some of these areas. So yes, I did want to see that in the submissions, and I did see that in some of the submissions. I think most of them, a lot of people, if I can share this, if you don't mind me sharing this, there, there are two, two biases. I think a, a lot of submitters missed that this idea is not just about the United States. And that was problematic because that's how I was trying, because that's how I marketed it. I had to make the case, why would you want a new constitution, say the Americans? Because Americans treat the constitution as a sacred document. It shouldn't be changed. In fact, it should go back to the way it was. It's like, no, we have had 36 amendments because it's not a perfect document and so on, right? Um, And also because we have a lot of problems that are born out of the fact that the constitution doesn't provide for a certain kind of legal or governance need. I also am interested in the common law, 
and I'll put that as a as a dog ear for a second, but there was this tension between it's like I didn't want to send the signal that I was trying to create a new constitution for the UN for a global governance. And I got accused of that. I got I had tomatoes and eggs thrown at me on Twitter when I was trying to advertise this contest because people thought that I was trying to sully the constitution or that I was trying to be a globalist, right? And usually from the same group who misinterpreted both things and, you know, and got it wrong. It's like, no, what I'm trying to do is come up with an open source constitution that any people who desire freedom in the world can seek to adopt in some way or implement in some way, that this is going to be really hard, but I'm trying to change our mind frame to return to this idea of the consent of the governed, which is a very deeply American concept. That usually shut them up when you start talking about Jefferson and you actually appeal to the Declaration of Independence. You know, you could just sort of question their patriotism and they'd be like, oh, okay. But anyway, there's a tension there. People sacralize the Constitution. So the so a lot of people submitted things that just were like a, a rejiggering of the U.S. Constitution. And there's there's value in that, no doubt. But I really wanted them to push towards something that was more cosmopolitan and more about how to, you know, implement stronger subsidiarity rule and uh, consent based order. And so we did get a lot of those as well. In fact, one of our winners is from India. And that just delights me to no end. You just mentioned you're going to dog ear your interest in the common law. And that was also my next question, actually. So far, Maybe my favorite idea of a of a new constitution that I've heard, and I know you're familiar with this, is is Tom Bell's ULEX. So uh, one, I wonder if you could uh, describe that briefly for the audience. It's related to the common law. It is the common yeah. law, just uh, kind of stripped of its state backed nature. And what if anything's wrong with that? What what if anything is needed beyond that? Well, you know, I have to say. Um, I used to run an event called Future Frontiers, and before that was called Voice and Exit. The first name was was too obscure for people appealing to Albert Hirschman's book, Exit Voice and Loyalty. But that's an interesting set of dynamics that are at play here. We could we can talk about that as some other episode, perhaps. But Tom came out to uh, speak at Voice and Exit, and I want to say 2014, it might have been 2014 or so when he spoke, maybe even 2013. But in any case. He was one of the main speakers, and I think he had just received the download from the source, so to speak, when he came up to me and he said, Max, I've got this idea. I think I want to do do this talk instead, because I'd asked him to do a talk on, um, you know, um, I think special zones or something like that, because he had been working in that space. But he had this special idea. economic zones, special economic zones. Yeah, special jurisdictions. So I think that's probably what I asked him to talk about. And he was like, I really want to talk about this idea. I just had it. And, and he started writing stuff down on an index card. I don't know if he had written anything on it separately, but he was like, I'm so excited about this idea. Let me do this. Let me talk about this innovation. So really, Tom planted the seeds for me in many respects, apart from Dup- understanding Dupuit as being uh, Dupuit's panarchy, uh, which I had come in contact with in 2007 or eight, I want to say. Tom really drove the point home, the idea of open source law with ULEX. ULEX plays on LEX, which is law, okay? And UNIX, which is an old operating system, right? So the kernel of of UNIX is an open source software that's actually used in Linux. So he's playing on that, that open source, the idea of an open source operating system. So ULEX, the name, was born. And what you find is, uh, Tom said, let's take the common law as, you know, the best features of the common law pulled from all of the, I guess he pulls it from from the Anglosphere, but pro- probably most of it from uh, Delaware Commercial Code. But he hopefully pulls it also- from the, the prominent restatements of the American common law. Okay, great. Yeah. And so what you get is this fantastic common law substrate that anybody in the world could pull from as open source code. It's like, hey, we need some law. We need some tested law. We have cases here. We have case law precedent. And once we start, you know, inviting judges to come adjudicate certain, you know, conflicts and this and that, then we have, you know, and and what's interesting is that common law really 
in especially in torts, really enshrines some of these ideas of basic rights of life, liberty, and property. Because everything is in common law is judged by whether and to what extent someone was injured or damaged. Damages should accrue to a certain party by virtue of the actions of someone else, right? So it's protecting people and property. And that's pretty much all you need um, in a really robust set of laws. So for example, Tom was an advisor in Prospera, which is a special economic zone. And you can apply the common law, which is, a, you, well, they use ULEX, if I'm not mistaken, in setting up and incorporating a business down there. But you can also, and this is an interesting legal innovation, you can also select from any number of regulatory regimes from around the world. So if, for example, you're serving the Japanese market, maybe you want to use the Japanese regulatory code for whatever it is you're producing. But you also have the option of using the common law straight up. And the choice set of different laws and this idea of plucking legal codes as needed based on your particular needs is really interesting because at the end of the day, you're going to get protections either way. You're not going to be able to violate other people's rights, life, liberty, and property. Instead, you're going to have to um, you're going to have to abide by some kind of code that seeks to respect those. And so they make provisions for that in a menu of options. And Tom is behind that. So it's actually effing brilliant. I didn't know so, he was an advisor for Prospera. That's really cool. Now, there are some others. Uh, Nick Dranias as uh, one of them, or Dranius. Forgive me, Nick, if I've mispronounced your name. And there are some others. There's some great uh, lawyers working down there, um, Christian Betancourt and others. But at the end of the day, there's such cool pragmatism going on in this, this kind of legal experimentation. So this is one of those areas where you know your 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 empiricist bent like let's see if if it works your pragmatistic empiricist perspective really is in, is being invited because we want to see if prospera works despite the fact that it has a central government around that it is to its hostile to its existence and you know that that's that's another problem it's going to be there for everybody but to finally put a period at the end of a very long paragraph, you asked me a question about uh, the Constitution. I think, you know, how this relates to the Constitution of Consent. I absolutely was inspired by ULEX. It's been in the background of my thinking now for a long time. I was inspired by Panarchy and I was inspired by ULEX. And I really wanted to do the contest. Now, the funder of the contest, one of the major funders behind the contest, wanted to do it because he wants to see something implemented. He wants to create a new sovereign nation. He has some different political philosophy than I do, but is so fascinated by the idea of panarchy that there can be uh, subsidiary differences among legal regimes that he was willing to, to get behind this. He's, he's more conservative in his outlook, let's just say that. But what's interesting about him is he was persuaded of this idea of legal pluralism. And so... We did the the uh, the contest, and you know Tom's Ulex was certainly an inspiration for it. Can we back up to the concept of underthrow a little bit? This is this is the title of your most recent book. Can you say again what is the concept of underthrow? Obviously, it is a word designed in opposition to overthrow. What is it? Is it dangerous? Are you a radical? Are you on uh, are you on watch lists? I probably am on watch lists. Um, I'm not fully aware of it yet, but I just want to say hi to the NSA and the FBI <laughs> and the CIA, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, the idea of underthrow is, in essence, a peaceful dissolution of central authority or decentralization through peaceful means. One of those ideas, uh, those peaceful means, I call subversive innovation. And su subversive innovation is a three-part mandate for people who love freedom uh, or appreciate this idea of freedom and pluralism, okay? And it goes like this. These innovators should think through the following three mandates. The first is to reduce transactions cost or reduce cooperation costs. So whatever you design should make it easier for people to collaborate or exchange, number one. Number two. It should increase predation costs. That is, it should make it harder for predators and parasites, sorry to use such negative language, but central authorities or criminals to be parasitic or predatory. 
And third, uh, reduced cost to exit a system. In other words, make it easier to exit one system. And usually you do so by creating another system that you can enter into at lower cost. A great example of a subversive innovation, your, your listeners may not may hate me for saying this, I'm not a maximalist, but that's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an excellent example of subversive innovation. It ticks all those boxes, right? It's, it's easier to cooperate with people uh, outside of the dollar matrix and to transact. So those costs have been lowered. It is um, raised the cost of predation, forcing you into uh, a system, the, the dollars matrix, which comes with, you know, all, all, all manner of pathologies. And you can, if you use anonymizers and so on, you can also have uh, transactions that are outside of the, the watchful eyes of state actors. And finally, reducing the, the cost of exiting a system. It is literally an, uh, an exit hatch from, from the dollar. Now, some might argue that other cryptocurrencies are doing a better job of security, better job with anonymity, and so on. Great. It's an evolutionary ecosystem in which ideas are constantly having sex. So, awesome. Find the properties that you want and adopt those properties. But that is the way I'm also trying to get people to look at the law and look at the way we self-organize as peoples, not through authoritarian means that are imposed on us based on the single conception of the good, but based bottom up on people tinkering with legal systems in order to find ways to coexist peacefully and enjoy prosperity and hopefully some level of fulfillment in their lives. What developments currently going on give you the most hope for this vision? I mean, Prospera is definitely one. I just got back from there last week, and it was my first time visiting. Tell me about that. I plan on going <laughs> yeah. myself. Yeah, great. I hope you do. I, I, there's all kinds of interesting things going on, on down there. Uh, so the, the the first one, which I didn't do, and I really wanted to, but my family absolutely forbids it. And, uh, <laughs> and that's um, is that there's a company down there that is running clinical trials on gene therapy. It's called MiniCircle. And... This is, you know, outside the re regulatory auspices of the United States. You know, the FDA, it takes, you know, 15 years and billions of dollars to get anything through. So what they're doing is setting up shop in this jurisdiction. So if people want to experiment, um, want to use gene therapy, polystatin gene therapy in particular, they can re basically replace a gene in their body that allows them to produce <clears throat> polystatin, which is, as I understand it, a substance, a protein or something like that, that has the effect of increasing muscle mass, bone density, and in laboratory animals, at least, reversing aging. You'll see the animals having less gray hair, for example. So these, these kind of um, life extension, longevity projects, people are wanting to experiment with this stuff freely, and they can't do it in the United States. Do you know for that company what legal regime they're operating under? Because my understanding is with with medical, uh, the medical field, you, you're in Prosper, you're supposed to either select a legal regime from a, a list of peer countries, probably OECD countries, or you can just try your luck and accept, I think, something like triple liability penalties for in the common law. That that that's right. Yeah, tri triple liability in the common law is 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 correct. So that's why a lot of people go the CYA route. But in, with medical in particular, I think there may be a different, slightly different set aside than say a factory or something like that. But the answer is I don't know. Um, but I would encourage you <clears throat> to invite uh, Machiavelli Davis on the show, who is the founder of Mini Circle. He's doing great great stuff, and or um, Walter whose last name escapes me, Walter is, I think, the, the chief scientist for them. And then um, the cryptocurrency space, including the DAO space, is is really been interesting. And I think it gets things get more interesting in, in the darker times, what we what the crypto community calls winters. People were obsessed with dumb crap like NFTs, you know, board apes and stuff like this and treating it as a gambling casino. But the developer community, and that pulled the developer community away from more important things like, you know, governance systems of the future that I'm really more interested in. And I think are going to be to greater benefit of humanity when we can learn to adopt these systems a la Balaji Srinivasan, the network state type projects. <clears throat> so we want to see more of that happen and less board ape stuff. But the special economic zones or special jurisdiction space 
you know, China really led the way in that. Uh, and, you know, Deng Xiaoping was basically saying, hey, let's let's experimenting, let's experiment with letting some of these farmers keep their surpluses. He consulted with some some Westerners and decided to set up special zones. And of course, you know, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, I think is what it's called. I think that's and Some right. of these um, were, I just want to make sure there's special economic zones, uh, whereas, you know, Beijing may not be. But anyway, these others, Macau was one that was ancient and already there, Portuguese colony. But in essence, let, let's see if we can uh, get Hong Kong to happen. I don't even think they expected Hong Kong to happen. But they got Hong Kongs all over China uh, in these special zones. And they lifted a lot of people out of po poverty in just in my lifetime, because I remember Deng Xiaoping. You know, I was alive then. That is now being suppressed or unfortunately um, is not being respected by the CCP. And so they're having a lot of problems. They're, they've become Keynesian. They've been always been Keynesians. Even though they got some of the institutions right, which allowed prosperous cities to flourish, they're being macro Keynesians and ruining ruining everything, ruining the entrepreneurial process. And so, what you get, what you get, is a China struggling much in the way the United States is right now, um, but for different reasons. And so, um, but the but the the core idea there, and Prospera folks will tell you this, is that SEZs are SEZs and even sovereign jurisdictions can be the next China. Look what Dubai did in my lifetime. They went from basically villages in the desert to freaking Dubai. And that they use common law commercial code for their for their transactions. They hired a bunch of retired judges at first to to get it started. And man, they've done an excellent job. Backing up to Hong Kong, speaking of them, did you ever look much into Kowloon Walled City? Are you familiar with that? I did look into it for for a time. It was a strange a strange animal. I think there are lessons that, there for for decentralized governance that haven't been plumbed very much. Uh, obviously, it's not you know it's not really a thriving city, a modern thriving city. But I think there's some really interesting lessons well, it's, there. It's it's gone now. Basically, yes. the the CCP leveled it and um and made. Yeah, I think it was no. Actually, I think it was a. No, it was, it I think was Hong Kong the itself leveled it, didn't I think, it? I think city of, yeah, I think the Hong Kong administrative body. It was like Hong it. Kong within Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, I have, I'll, I'll just admit, I'm, I'm what you might call an asymptotic anarchist, okay? So an asymptote is a curve that approaches a line, right? Uh, and I'm not good at math, so I might screw this up, but it's a curve that approaches an axis or a line. And an asymptote will have the function of getting closer and closer to that axis of that line, but may never actually get there, right? So similarly, if you can plot the pro the progress of humanity towards anarchy, which would be a state of requiring no no uh, coercion or compulsion to uh, to live harmoniously together in prosperity, that would be the ideal, right? So for me, all of these debates about minarchism and anarchism, I sort of agree with you. It's, they're all silly. We have to think pragmatically. We have to consider our own circumstances, the exogenous and endogenous forces that we have to wrestle with every day to get us closer and closer to the ideal. But we'll never, we may never actually get there. And so as we approach asymptotically this state of affairs, it's just going to be about experimentation. And um uh I think there is such a, a, a thing as two. So, I, first of all, I would characterize anarchy as, as rules without rulers. But there is such a thing as anarchy without rules or rulers. Okay. And I suspect that Kowloon didn't have enough rules and didn't have enough of, of an administrative, competitive administrative means of in, enforcing said rules. So you got some kind of wacky stuff, but um, but I want to um, but I want to pull back with humility and say I don't know enough about it to be able to pronounce any sort of judgment, and I'm looking forward to to diving back into it. My guess is that, like a lot of things, if you are operating in the shadows, there's a limit to how organized and visible you can operate before the authorities say enough is enough and shut you down. So. Kowloon Walled City was operating outside of the governance structure of even Hong Kong. But I, yeah. I, I imagine that if they decided, 
let's start experimenting with like more formal systems of governance and things like that. Transparency. Yeah. Then it would have been more likely that they would have just gotten shut down. So no one wants to stick their head up and get cut off. But despite that issue, there was a remarkable amount of order down there. I mean, you know, they famously had like uh, a postal system, their own their own postal system. And they figured out it was, you know, it was messy and dirty and there was crime, but it was much more of an orderly uh, village of ordinary people living ordinary lives than you would expect from the bullet point picture of this little anarchic cube. You know, it was the most densely populated place that has ever existed for people who don't know. It's really, it's really interesting. This, um, this reminds me of the point that, um, oh gosh, what's his name? The Peruvian economist who should win a Hernando de Soto. Thank you. Hernando de Soto's um, description of the, uh, the shanty towns around uh, the, you know, around Lima, for example. Yeah. This is very there's, similar. Yeah. There's this thriving entrepreneurship in the informal sector, but it's but locked in. It's locked in. They can't scale. Like there's there's no formal institutions available to them for establishing a business transparently, um, doing all the things that are required to be to receive recognition uh, by the rest of society. So they operate in the informal economy, and you get a lot of you know spontaneous order or emergent order in these informal sectors, even though they're squalid and dirty and so on. But they're he- they're really entrepreneurial. They're out there with their carts selling fish and baskets and this and that. And they're, they're they're living the best life they can despite having access to the institutional, formal institutional substrate. And so I think this is, um, there are parallel lessons there as well. Yeah, his book, The Mystery of Capital is so good. If anyone hasn't checked that out in the audience, do that immediately. Um, can you recommend a good book that you think complements your body of work especially well? I'd say the more, a more, I'd say let's do an old and a new. Yes, please. I would say that from a strategic standpoint, the new book would be Balaji Srinivasan's The Network State, where his is more like a strategic blueprint, how-to guide to establishing a network state. Underthrow or The Social Singularity, or, which are my books, would be the pamphleteer versions. Now, the Social Singularity, which is my most successful book, frankly, came out before the network state. Yet, I think Balaji's way of his way of analyzing things brings a lot to the discussion. And he also has like three hundred thousand Twitter followers and is famous, so he has that going for him. And the more people who read the network state and start thinking along those analytical, strategic lines, the better. What I try to bring in my work is the pamphleteering, you know, the Tom Paine stuff, you know, describing the basic analytical framework for it, but also bringing the moral anim- to animate it with some sort of moral cultural ideas, too, so that it's a complete and holistic, dare I say it, doctrine or anti-doctrine, if you like, because pluralism doesn't get is asymmetrical with respect to specific doctrine, but it's a meta doctrine. How's that? Going it's a, back a into framework the framework for utopias, like Robert Nozick said. Oh yeah, and oh gosh, thank you for mentioning that. You got to read that if you haven't, especially part three. Um, people linger on part two, and that's great, but really, part three of Anarchy State and Utopia is fantastic. Uh, spend some time with that, and and then right in between there, there's this book called The Sovereign Individual which came out around 1999 or year 2000. And it anticipated so many of the advances in decentralization from digital currencies to special economic zones. It's it's really pretty fantastic. Are there any upcoming projects you want to plug? Yeah. Um, first of all, you can um, you can subscribe for free to, to my Substack, which is called Underthrow. You can find it at underthrow.org. And there I'll be talking about the next phase of the Constitution of Consent uh, project, which is going to be um, putting together a working group and starting to try to open source this idea. So thinking of it as a complement to maybe Tom Bell's ULEX. And uh, another project that I have uh, that's on the horizon, but more distant horizon, is to begin to establish something like a fraternal or sororal society for people who think like us. This would be 
you might say, the first step in Balaji Srinivasan's network state strategy, which is to find each other in the cloud and realize that we exist and that we want to be served. And then we can start talking about how to formalize the relationships with each other. And then I'll be working, of course, in parallel on the constitution of consent. So those are the two big projects I have in mind at the moment. You mentioned already your Substack underthrow. Uh, where else can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? Amazon, of course. I got to give Jeff Bezos his pound of flesh. You can find all my books there by searching my name. Awesome. My guest today has been Max Borders. He is the author of The Decentralist, The Social Singularity, After Collapse, and his most recent book is Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a New Revolution. Max, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.